Thank you very much, Professor Kodabak. It's great to be here. It was great as well, a very uh, happy honor to celebrate the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. For many of you at the 11.30 Mass, I, I really was edified to see your piety and devotion in uh, that sacramental setting. Uh, and it's a great joy for me now to speak further about the sacraments this afternoon. So my presentation today is a Thomistic understanding of the moral parameters of sacramental reception. And I should mention too that there is a handout uh, available, so if you don't have one, I imagine they're at the door or floating around. Uh, so please do uh, get a copy. I will make reference uh, to it, and I'm sure you will be impressed by my artwork on page one. So I don't want you to be deprived of such high art. Our Lord Jesus Christ was quite clear in teaching that the moral life matters. When the rich young man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Jesus replied, If you would have life, keep the commandments. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And plus, to be perfect, the man had to sell what he possessed and give to the poor and follow Jesus. The moral life matters. Jesus was also clear that the sacramental life matters. As he said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Or... To a much larger audience, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So the sacramental life matters. But do the moral life and the sacramental life go together? Do they matter together? Specifically, our question for exploration this afternoon is the following. How does the Christian moral life fit within the very structure of a Catholic sacrament, a Christian sacrament? I would like to analyze this question about the moral parameters of sacramental reception by first looking at immoral sacramental reception. Namely, what happens when an impenitent, grave sinner receives a sacrament. St. Thomas Aquinas provides a fascinating analysis of such an, an interesting example, even albeit a negative one, one that will lead us to understand his positive teaching about the sacraments and their moral criteria. By the end of today's talk, I hope to have communicated three main points to you. First, given that this talk is in honor of Christendom College's noble celebration of St. Thomas Aquinas, I want to show how St. Thomas is helpful as a theological guide for Catholic life today. For the examples that I will pose, the scenarios are indeed very timely. Second, I want to show how immoral sacra sacramental reception is positively, concretely harmful for a person. 
But then more positively, I want to show third, how a moral active participation in the sacraments helps you to be a saint. We all know cases where someone's reception of a sacrament raises eyebrows. Perhaps you have family or friends who are not quite living the good Catholic morals of their baptism. Even those who are not themselves good so-called practicing Catholics will raise their eyebrows at other so-called bad Catholics. There's a sociability to the sacraments, and so our tendency to watch others socially and to judge them comes to the fore. We do not need to name names about persons in society who might be bad Catholics receiving sacraments, because probably each of us has a number of names and scenarios that spring to mind. With respect to the grave sinner receiving a sacrament, four responses are possible. A first response is to say that there's no problem whatsoever because the recipient's subjective moral state is altogether irrelevant to, the, to participation in sacramental life. A somewhat parallel issue is whether belief in Christ is even necessary for sacramental reception. You can certainly find Protestant Christians who hold that anyone can receive their version of the Eucharist in their congregations. Sinners, the non-baptized, non-believers, whatever. That approach is called sacramental hospitality. The general idea is that the experience or the power of the sacrament will bring about conversion, either conversion to Christ or conversion to moral life. You can undoubtedly find some Catholics who hold for this all-inclusive position, but it's rather difficult to justify this given some magisterial matters that I'll mention in a moment. Yes, it's true, we Catholics do affirm that the sacraments help convert us morally, but we also recognize moral differences between sacramental recipients, the one in the state of grace and the one not in the state of grace. A second response says that sacramental participation by believing Catholic sinners is the lesser of two evils and therefore a kind of mixed good. This response does not deny that the sacraments should only be received in the state of grace, but the allegation is a greater evil is seen in so-called perpetual abstinence from sacramental conduct. This has been an issue that's really come to the fore especially in the last couple of decades among certain theologians. The idea is that if a person, a Catholic, were to hold off from receiving a sacrament, something worse would happen. The rationale is not that receiving the sacrament would per se be good, but there would be something worse that would happen if the person did not receive that sacrament. So for instance, someone who is divorced and remarried, 
should that person abstain from receiving Holy Communion? The allegation has been made that, well, if they do, then they're setting a bad example for the kids. And that would be worse, because the parents would never see their, their parents modeling what it is to be a good Christian. A third response to sacramental reception by uncontrite sinners is that it is not a good act to do, but it's really not a big deal anyway. So why should we get in a huff about it? I find this on a regular basis among Catholics. The person does a mortal sin, knows that it's wrong, but then the whole family is going to Mass, everyone else is going up for communion, so the sinner, well, it should not be done, but well, the person just goes up, no real harm has happened, no lightning has struck the person dead, there's nothing to get worked up about. If the sinful communicant feels like it, he can mention it in his next normal confession, whenever that may happen to be. But persons who treat the sacraments this way, or others who allow them to do so, they're not trying to be malicious, they're not trying to be sacrilegious, they're just rather nonchalant about it all. That nonchalant attitude includes an implicit prayer for conversion. So the idea may be, well, my cousin Johnny, he really shouldn't be going to communion after his nefarious activities of last weekend, but I'm not going to say anything about it. Maybe God in that communion will strike him with the grace of conversion the grace of repentance. That sacramental maybe is the prayer that one sinful act, the reception of a sacrament without repentance, will somehow convert from other sinful acts. In this respect, this third response has a similarity to the second one that I sketched a second ago. For that third response, for this current third response, the indulgent relative toward Cousin Johnny, one could point out that there are a lot of indulgent relatives and a lot of indulgent Cousin Johnnies, but God does not seem to be producing a wave of, wave of conversion, conversions from their sacramental experiences. If there were, there would be a lot less mumbling about Cousin Johnny at the family kitchen table. The fourth response to sacramental reception by grave sinners is that it is a very big deal and that it is definitively destructive of the person who so does it. Why it is, though, has not attracted sufficient attention. Some good pious Catholics will know that immoral sacramental reception by unpenitent grave sinners is immoral, but if asked why, the typical response will be something like, well, the church says so, or canon law says so. That's not good enough. We as theologians can do better. Embedded within some of the above responses is the idea that the sacraments are medicinal, healing agents for those who are in the state of sin. We Catholics know that we have access to Christ in the sacraments. So why should sinners be cut off 
from sacramental contact with Christ, especially if they're ever going to stop being sinners and instead become saints. The data from the Bible, tradition, and the magisterium is overwhelming in its condemnation that unrepentant sinners should not receive the sacraments, and that materially, if we just look at the type of activity involved, such an action would be gravely sinful for the person who knowingly and freely chooses it. Much of the data is with respect to the unworthy reception of the Eucharist, but the principle holds for all of the sacraments. This includes, I should note, baptism and penance, the sacraments of the dead, those in sin, because I've been adding the qualification unrepentant whenever I've said grave sinner. Those receiving baptism and penance are supposed to be repentant for their sins. If they are, then baptism and penance are the sacramental places they should be. If they are not repentant, those persons are just adding new problems to their old problems. 1 Corinthians 11 offers the key text about the Eucharist. I've put it as quotation one on your handout. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. End quote. Note, the first part of the passage involves the earliest Christian recording of the institution of the Eucharist. And that is bound up by St. Paul with the second half of the quotation, which gets at the moral consequences of that institution of the Eucharist. The two go together, the sacramental gift and the moral responsibility. If we were to continue with the Eucharist, we could turn to the Didache, perhaps the earliest Christian text outside of the scriptures, dated perhaps to the second half of the first century, very early, that Didache supports this same Pauline prohibition. It says, let no one eat or drink of your thanksgiving, the Eucharist, but they who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For concerning this also, the Lord has said, give not that which is holy to the dogs. And in a separate passage, the Didache says, speaking about the Christian assembly on the Lord's day, Every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure. 
But let no one that is at variance with, this, with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be profaned. For this is that which was spoken by the Lord in every place and time, offer to me a pure sacrifice. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations. Close quote. St. Justin Martyr, in his first apology in 155, continues the same prohibition. We can continue on and on. For the sake of time, though, I will jump to the second quotation on your handout from the Council of Trent, which gives a very serious warning on this matter. Quote, it is not right that anyone should participate in any sacred functions, any sacred functions, except in a holy manner. Certainly then, the more a Christian is aware of the holiness and the divinity of this heavenly sacrament, the Eucharist, the more careful should he be not to receive it without great reverence and sanctity. Especially since we read in the apostle the fearful words, anyone who eats and drinks unworthily without discerning the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Therefore, whoever desires to communicate must be reminded of the precept, let a man examine himself. The practice of the church declares that that examination necessary so that no one who is aware of personal mortal sin, however contrite he may feel, should approach the Holy Eucharist without first having made a sacramental confession. If we were to move to sacraments other than the Eucharist, the citation that's typically given is Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. When St. Thomas comments on that passage in his commentary on the Gospel of St. Matthew, he says the holy things referred here are the, the ecclesiastical sacraments. The old Baltimore Catechism puts all of this in a typically pithy and punchy fashion. If you were to Dust off your catechism number two, which is the full one. Question 144 asks, what sin does he commit who receives the sacraments of the living in mortal sin? The answer, he who receives the sacraments of the living in mortal sin commits a sacrilege, which is a great sin, because it is an abuse of a sacred thing. The answer is quite Thomistic that the Baltimore Catechism gives, and we'll see why in a moment. So we have lots of data saying that the sacraments should not be received by sinners. But the scriptures and the church's magisterium do not supply much reason why it's wrong, why it's bad. At most, the argument is that the sacraments are holy, and the sinful recipient is not holy. But why should that be a problem? if the point of the sacraments is to make us holy. Christ was not afraid to come into contact with us sinners in order to heal and elevate us. And isn't it a great triumph when some great sinner gets baptized or goes to confession? Priests describe that act as catching a big fish and hauling him into the bark of the church. So why should contact between the sacraments and unrepentant grave sinners 
be such a problem? To find an answer, we can profitably turn to the sacramental theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. The seven sacraments, according to Aquinas, are instituted by Christ, and they involve a human minister who performs a liturgical ritual that involves the minister's own words and at least some other physical action or object. Now that's a very vague definition, precisely vague because our seven sacraments are rather disparate in their sacramental structures when we get down to details. For our purposes, there are a few characteristics of the sacramental structure that are pertinent. First, the sacraments are sacred signs that effect what they signify. Please look at quotation three on your handouts, a definition of the sacraments by Aquinas. He says, quote, a sacrament properly so-called is that which is the sign of some sacred thing pertaining to men. So that properly speaking, a sacrament as considered by us now is defined as being the sign of a sacred thing insofar as it is sanctifying men. The sacraments work in a human mode of signification, symbolism, signing, to bring about effects that are possible only due to divine power and intervention. The sacraments work in a human mode. In other words, Christ instituted them in such a way as to respond to our human way of knowing and loving. They're physical and spiritual. They involve matter and form. They're, they're material, involving things like water and bread and oil. And they involve physical touch with real bodies in all states of life. Dying bodies racked in pain. Happy young bodies ready to increase the church with marital love and children. Or one of those children at an irrational age that needs to be baptized. Even, for instance, as was mentioned uh, at the beginning, I used to be a parochial vicar at our Dominican parish down in Charlottesville. A great story that I'd like to mention. One of those uh, children, a fruit of a Catholic marriage, for whatever reason was not brought forward for baptism right away. Don't know why. But brought forward at the age of three or four. And as he's being brought up to the baptismal waters, he's screaming, Mommy, Mommy, I do not want to be baptized. <laughs> and the pastor of the parish at the time said, Sorry, kiddo, I baptize you in the name of the Father <laughs> and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So yes, even in that physicality, the physicality that's not always under control, the sacraments touch us. They are earthy, and we have to remember that Catholic earthly, earthiness, that concreteness. But the sacraments are also spiritual, intellectual. The physical actions with material things are done in ways that carry specific meanings discernible to our intellects. So presumably that kid had been washed before in water after three or four years. But yet he knew, even in his not totally quite rational state, that getting baptized is different. 
We pour water over people and baptize them, adding words that give meaning. In Thomistic theology, the necessary words are termed the sacramental form, for they give specificity to the matter. Just like we know from our philosophical studies with Aristotle, that form, substantial form, informs, gives shape to matter, natural matter, bringing about trees as opposed to worms, as opposed to dogs, as opposed to human beings. The baptismal matter is the washing with water, and then the baptismal form is the verbal specification that the minister is not washing the baby because the baby is physically dirty, but so as to cleanse him, <coughs> to cleanse him from spiritual impurity. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Part of this intellectual side of a sacrament involves faith. The sacraments build faith and they depend upon faith. There's an interplay between the correct faith and correct sacraments. Lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of praying is the law of believing. And it's also the law of our sacramental actioning. This relationship between correct faith and correct sacraments is why, for instance, certain other Protestant communities do not have true sacraments in all cases because they have changed their faith, changed how they practice the sacramental rites, and therefore those sacraments do not work as sacraments. Sometimes they do but not always. So the sacraments are physical and intellectual. They are earthy and brainy. The correct framework for this, according to St. Thomas, involves a couple of Latin terms that I've sketched out for you on your handout. My artwork on the bottom of page one. The correct liturgical ritual done in the church is called the sacramentum tantum, the sign itself, the sign alone. Our one word, sacrament, has multiple meanings, sometimes confusingly so. But if we just talk about the sign itself, the sacramentum tantum, the exterior sign, what's brought together by the form and the matter, the sacramental form, the sacramental matter, that's the liturgical rite. And that signifies further effects. And so if you follow the arrows, as we're going up in grace here on my uh, drawing, we move to the res sacramentum, an intermediate stage. Something has been achieved, the race, the thing, it's an effect, an immediate effect, but that itself is a sign, a further sign, a causative sign to a final effect, the last stage on our progression, the res tantum, the final effected grace of the sacrament. To give an example, in the sacrament of baptism that I've been describing, the pouring of water over the baby's head, along with the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's the exterior sacramental sign, the sacramentum tantum. That creates within the individual baby's uh, soul, the character, that together, between sacramentum tantum and resident sacramentum, 
moves toward the life of Christological grace, the new life of grace, the new life of holiness, which is the final effect of baptism, the res tantum. All of this together is called the sacrament. Now, in the process whereby a sacrament occurs, the first two steps lead to a final step. And the whole thing should be a unity, a unified process. It's a dynamic process, a kind of stepladder, where there's a kind of gradual progression, a cumulative effect, kind of a barreling down the road from, start one to, from step one to step two to step three. If, if it were possible, one could put brakes on that barreling down the road. More about that in a minute. But first, it should be emphasized that the sacrament here for Aquinas fundamentally is a sign. A sign that calls forth from an observer a response, a recognition. A recognition that something is going on here that involves my intellect and that there's something further going on than just the surface appearance. So if I were to write on the board, and if I had a blackboard behind me, two plus two, we could say there are three signs. Two is a sign, the first, sign, first two is a sign, the plus sign is a sign, and the second two is a sign. But you would know that there's something beyond just those three characters. You would know that that equation signifies four. It's a kind of intellectual sign. There's also signs that have, hopefully, practical effects. So if you're driving a car, if a red stoplight were to show up in your vision, hopefully that's a practical sign that you're going to stop. Hopefully. With the sacraments, these are practical signs in that they present Christ's data to us. They move us beyond just the surface image of what's going on with the words being professed or being expressed and the actions being done, the pouring of water, the holding of bread and wine, in order to be practical toward the effect of grace. Moving from left to right, from the sacramentum tantum through the rest of sacramentum to the rest tantum. Doing the sacramentum tantum, doing the minimal sacramental rite is like putting up the right signs on the blackboard so that you get to the right result. It's like sending out the right signals and the right codes so that the respondent, the divine respondent, will send back the right goodie. Depending upon the signals sent forth, the appropriate goodie is returned. Now that's a crude analogy. Sacramental effects are not just goodies, like the goodies awaiting our reception afterward. But it gets at this quality of a sacrament as a sign that's leading, that's effective, that's practicable towards something further. Now, According to Aquinas, the most basic thing that we are signifying in a sacrament is holiness. A sacrament flows from Christ, who is all holy, 
and the sacrament flows back to Christ by conferring Christ's holiness to the sacramental recipient and by bringing that transformed Christian to Christ. A sacrament is an externalization physically of an inner orientation from God and toward God. Sacraments indeed cause grace, but they themselves are the result of God's antecedent grace already at work, at least in some form. We do a baptism, for instance, as a sign of the gospel and grace already at work in the community, a sign that we wish further holiness, new holiness, to be given to little Mary or little Johnny, the ones who are being baptized. So a sacrament signifies holiness, the holiness of God, the holiness of Christ, a holiness that can apply to us human beings. That's indeed how the word sacrament gets its name. A sacrament, in terms of its etymology, goes back to the verb sacrare, to consecrate, to make holy, to the adjective sacer, holy or dedicated or set apart. So a sacrament is an intellectual sign of Christian holiness, a sacrament that brings about Christian holiness. I've been speaking about sacramental signs and holiness, sanctity, as if these were floating around in the world, randomly coming together with sacramental effects that miraculously spring up on this earth. But of course these sacramental signs occur through personal agents, human beings. In sacramental theology, traditionally we talk about the sacraments being done by ministers and being received by recipients. When we talk about the moral parameters of the sacramental structure, we ultimately need to be talking about these ministers and recipients. So let's look now at how Aquinas analyzes the situation of a grave sinner receiving, let's say, Holy Communion. The text is number five on your handout, the back of your handout. Thomas writes, in this sacrament, as in the others, that which is a sacrament is a sign of that which is the reality of the sacrament. Now, there is a twofold reality of this sacrament, one which is signified and contained, that is the res sacramentum, the intermediate step, namely Christ himself, the real presence of Jesus, while the other is signified but not contained, not contained physically in something that can be seen. Here, Thomas is talking about the res tantum, the final step. He says, namely, Christ's mystical body, which is the fellowship of the saints, the life of charity that binds Christ and the saints together. He continues, therefore, whoever received, receives this sacrament by that very fact signifies that he is united with Christ and incorporated into his members. This indeed occurs through formed, that is, living faith, which no one has who is in mortal sin. And therefore it is manifest that whoever receives this sacrament while in mortal sin is guilty of lying in this sacrament. Literally, falsitatem in hoc sacramento committed. He commits falsity 
in this sacrament. And therefore, he incurs sacrilege as it were a violator of the sacrament. And therefore, he sins morally. Mortally, excuse me, mortally. A few lines afterward, Aquinas will describe the sin of receiving Holy Communion unworthily as, quote, the crime of falsity about divine things. The crime of falsity about divine things. For Aquinas, the central problem is lying, falsehood, an offense against truth. The act of giving and receiving Holy Communion is not the essential act of the Eucharist, but the similar, excuse me, but the structure is similar. When the minister of Holy Communion offers the sacred species, he signifies that this is Christ himself, holiness incarnate, who gives his flesh and blood to those belonging to his mystical body by the virtues of faith and charity. And when a person presents himself for Holy Communion, he inserts himself into a sign act, a sign act that says, I am bound to this Christ before me by right Catholic faith and by living charity. I can and should receive this Holy Eucharist for my growth in union with this Christ. When that relationship of faith and pre-existent pre holiness does not take place between the minister and the recipient, Aquinas is saying that you have a false sign going on. The recipient is sending a conflicting signal. And therefore, the sign, the signification does not line up such that you don't have signification that is true. Bystanders like you and me may not be able to notice the messed up signification, but conflicting signals are still there. For Aquinas, the total sign act is not done correctly unless all of the agents are rightly contributing their individual signs. For Aquinas, a sacrament as a sign is about truth, the communication of true signs. You may have heard that if a sacramental rite is attempted but something goes fatally wrong and no sacrament really occurs, you may have heard that it's called an invalid sacrament. That language of validity and invalidity is not universal throughout the Latin tradition. Yes, it's used by canon lawyers and in the current magisterium, but Thomas has a different language. He says, he talks instead about the truth of a sacrament, veritas sacramenti. He talks about whether a sacramental rite was truly performed. So the sacraments involve truth. Truth because they are fundamentally signs. A sign can be true or it can be false. If a sign is going to be a sacrament, it has to be celebrated in truth. That is, in a way that is internally and externally consistent. When an unrepentant sinner presents himself for a sacrament, he is falsifying the sign, the sign that should be holy, for the liturgical rites, that is, the sacramentum tantum, is holy, and it connects to the holiness who is Christ. 
Furthermore, the liturgical rite is supposed to lead to the holiness, the grace conferred at the end of the sacramental process, the res tantum. Another example can be offered with respect to baptism. I gave the example earlier of that rambunctious three or four year old yelling that he did not want to be baptized. Now even in that case, below the age, re age of reason, reason, the sacrament truly worked because the kiddo cannot pose, cannot offer a true contradictory sign because he's not in control of himself fully. In his case, transformative grace was communicated. But what if the baptismal recipient were older? What if a pagan man wants to marry a very rich, very Catholic young lady who will only marry a Catholic? But this pagan man is a professional scoundrel who only wants to marry the woman in order to swindle her out of her money. As soon as they are married, he's going to drain the bank account and leave. Now, in order to marry this very Catholic woman, the pagan man goes through the ceremony of baptism, but he has no internal intention to embrace Christ. Is that man baptized? St. Thomas deals with this. It's quotation six on your handout. He writes, a man is said to be feigning who makes a show of willing what he wills not. Now whoever approaches baptism by that very fact makes a show of having right faith in Christ, of veneration for this sacrament, and of wishing to conform to the church and to renounce sin. But a feigning man gives a fictitious presentation. And so as Aquinas concludes in the last part of the quotation there, a fiction impedes the effect of baptism. That pagan swindler may have looked good, but he was not baptized. And by the way, the marriage with that poor and rich woman was not a real marriage either. So a sacrament is a delicate balance between signification causality, and effects, all of which relate to sanctity. If the recipient is in the state of moral sin, if charity has been broken with Christ, that intricate but delicate sacramental structure starts breaking down. In the case of someone who goes through a liturgical sacramental rite but has unremitted mortal sin, there is a block, an impediment, that is placed upon the sacramental rite having further effect, having its fullest effect. Now, if you were to look at my artistic diagram again, for each one of those arrows, for every arrow, well, let's say between steps one and step two, between the sacramentum tantum and the resident sacramentum, resident sacramentum, a block could be put there, a line through the arrows, and there could be a second block between the res sacramentum and the res tantum. In the case of that pagan swindler trying to get the money from the poor, rich young lady, there's a block at the first instance. But let's say the guy, well, he's not a swindler. Um, okay, he's a pagan. 
he's open, kind of, to getting baptized, but he's not really enthusiastic. Maybe he likes to hold on to his gambling problem, his very serious gambling problem. In that case, he's willing to get baptized in order to marry the rich young lady. He doesn't want to be mean to her, but he really kind of likes some of that money too in order to aid his gambling uh, cause. So yes, he does get baptized. There is baptismal character that's given in his case, but there's not the fullness of baptismal life achieved at the end. Looking at how the sacraments cause grace through their signification, much of our attention has been placed on the minister, often a priest, who gives a sacrament to a recipient. But the preceding analysis about the sinful recipient illustrates just how important the recipient himself plays in the sacramental rite. Within the sacramental structure of signification, the recipient is not a passive observer. He has an active role, a role that must, be that must be played. That role may be relatively more passive relative to the minister, but a role that still must be fulfilled. For the minister and the recipient cooperate in forming what should be the sacramentum tantum. The recipient must place himself before a minister. He must intend to participate in the sacramental rite. See quotation number seven that I've put on your handout from a great Irish Dominican theologian of the 20th century, sacramental theologian, Father Coleman O'Neill. He describes what happens if the sacramental recipient is uncooperative. Quote, mere physical submission to the sacraments on the part of one who has the use of reason is not enough. Man is a free agent, and he is moved by God to accept freely the grace given him. So it is required that he freely submit himself to the action of the sacrament. If he has no intention of receiving the sacrament, his external acceptance of it is not a true sign of his internal, interior disposition. Consequently, the complete sign action of the administration of the sacrament is not true. The sacrament, such as it, such as, as it is, is performed and applied by the minister, is not received, though, by the, by the subject. It is reduced by the fault of the subject to an unnatural state. It still signifies the salvific will of God, but no longer as concretely effective for this individual subject. If, however, while not properly disposed to receive grace, the subject seriously intends to receive the sacrament, the external submission he makes is a true sign, and the sacrament is actually received by him and produces whatever effects do not depend on his state of soul. Normally, we use the term concelebration to describe when multiple priests cooperate together in offering the holy sacrifice of the Mass. However, in an analogous way, there must be concelebration by any sacramental minister and any sacramental recipient in any sacrament. Now, in certain sacraments that can be given to babies, such as baptism and confirmation, the baby cannot truly form a spiritual intention that would block God's gift of redemption. 
But once the age of reason has been reached, there has to be sacramental concelebration. If we then look now at the unrepentant grave sinner, we find the following trend. Perhaps the first time he commits a mortal sin and then goes to Holy Communion, perhaps the first time he does so, he's sorry about it. Perhaps even fearful. Perhaps he fears that God will punish him immediately. But as we know, the guy probably does not physically feel that he is heaping judgment upon himself. No, thankfully, the Lord is patient and allows for time for repentance. So the sinful communicant probably just thinks to himself, well, I shouldn't have done that, but it wasn't so bad, was it? No one got hurt. It was just a neutral act. But as the unrepentant sinner keeps on receiving the sacraments in this fashion, nonchalantly, without repentance, it's not just that he commits mortal sin because he's not recognizing the holiness of the sacraments, the holiness of the signs and the effects. No, this recipient is shaping his mind to an alternative reality. He is saying that these sacramental rites are not truly holy things. He is effectively hollowing out the very sacramental system by which Christ saves us, by which that sinner himself needs to be saved. So after a year of going up for Sunday communion as a sinner, the guy may miss a Sunday Mass because he instead wants to watch football. And after all, if he's treating the Eucharist as just a kind of plaything, what's the big deal about missing one show at church in order to watch another show on TV? That's going on in his mind. And then after a number of years of living like that, going to Mass sometimes, but not other times, when cancer strikes, why should he think that it would be important to call the priest to make a good confession and receive sacramental absolution and receive the last rites? Indeed, sinful sacramental reception of this sort is not a neutral act. It's a very big deal because it undercuts the very sacramental system itself. And that is why St. Paul and St. Thomas and the Magisterium react so violently against the reception of the sacraments by unrepentant grave sinners. It's not the individual act per se that is so serious, although it is. It's a mortal sin, and any mortal sin is bad. It's the long-term habit that it creates that is so destructive because it involves the destruction of the ability to recognize the sacramental signs. The vice of immoral sacramental reception corrupts the sacramental sign, the sacramental hope, the sacramental system. For those of us trying to live on the side of the angels and saints, as I'm, I know all of you are, knowledge of that sacramental vice flipped around can point us towards sacramental virtue. Indeed, there is such a thing as sacramental virtue. It's when you act well as a sacramental minister. 
For instance, when you baptize someone in a dire emergency, or when you and your future spouse enter into holy matrimony. Or sacramental virtue is when you act well as a sacramental recipient, when you present your sorrow for sacramental absolution after you've made a good examination of conscience, instead of just dashing into the confessional because you figure, oh, the light is green and no one's in front of me, without thinking what in the world are you going to say. Sacramental virtue, confessional virtue. Or, for instance, when you present yourself worthily for Holy Communion, sacramental virtue as a recipient. So when you participate in a sacrament, do not consider yourself a passive observer. You may have heard the, the phrase active participation with respect to the liturgy. It was a buzzword, especially around Vatican II and afterward, for how Catholics are supposed to operate, participate in the liturgy as a whole. And you may have heard that that phrase got used for all sorts of goofy ideas and practices. Now, I'm not here to propose or celebrate or support goofy ideas. And I'm sure you're not here to support such things either. But the phrase itself, active participation, is very right and it's very traditional. In the modern magisterium, it's first used not at Vatican II and not by people after Vatican II. It's first used by Pope St. Pius X who in his instruction on sacred music in 1903 said, the faithful assemble to draw that spirit of worship from its primary and indispensable source that is from active participation in the sacred mysteries and in the public and solemn prayer of the church. Pope Pius XI would use the phrase, Pope Pius XII would use the phrase as well, calling the people to an active part in the liturgy. As Pius XII said, the Christian people take such an active part in the liturgy that it becomes a truly sacred act of due worship to the eternal Lord, in which the priest and the faithful are united together. But what the Magisterium is saying here about the liturgy as a whole is what St. Thomas said about ministers and recipients in the sacraments. For St. Thomas, the sacraments are joint acts of worship. Coleman O'Neill brings this out in the last quotation of your handout, which for the sake of time I will lead, leave you to read on your own. Other than to say that he says here how, as he says about halfway down, the liturgical, the sacramental rite that is done is the common symbolic action of minister and subject one giving, the other receiving, the material elements of the sacrament. It's a joint act, a con-celebration. Except for the Eucharist, it takes two to dance, sacramentally. And even in the case of the Eucharist, even in the case of a Mass celebrated by a single priest with no server and no congregation, the Mass is still always oriented outward toward the worship of God and the sanctification of the church. When St. Thomas talks about this sacramental reception, your role, for the most part, he stresses the subjective devotion of the recipient. 
the more devotion, the more grace that can be received. Yes, it's true. If a person is open to the sacrament, he'll receive some grace. Even that kind of, you know, not so great guy that I mentioned earlier is going to get married to that uh, young lady, the one with the gambling problem, but not the scoundrel. The guy who's halfway good, a halfway good guy, he's going to get some grace if he's open to it. Oh, oh no, I forgot. That guy had a gambling problem. That's right. So he was a grave sinner. Well, let's say you've got a guy who's just got a little gambling problem. <laughs> so he's in the state of grace, but he's kind of, you know, he's not so fervent. He'll get some grace when he goes uh, for communion in the state of grace. But a more devout person, a recipient who is cooperating more intensely and devotedly, a St. John Vianney celebrating Mass instead of a Father Lackadaisical, or a St. Catherine of Siena instead of a Miss Daydreamer, or a Miss Daydreamer who's daydreaming about her Twitter feed or something. The saints cooperate proportionally more in the sacramental rites, and they therefore get more in the participation of Christ's sacramental grace. So as you live your great Catholic morals here at Christendom and beyond, and as you live the Catholic sacraments, know that these two go together. As you live faith and morals, you're better able to understand and contribute to these sacramental signs. Your intellectual vision is clearer, less befuddled by the chaos of sin. It is more ordered to the truth signified in the sacraments and more ordered to the sanctity effected by the sacraments. The holiness of your clean living, your holy body, your holy soul, contributes to the holiness already embedded in the sacramental rite itself. So good Christendom students and professors and staff Cooperate as an active participant in the sacraments, and you will be a good Thomas sacramental theologian and a good Thomas sacramental saint. Thank you.